Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, the New Testament book of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's okay because we do have paperback Bibles available. They should be under the chairs in front of you. Sometimes they get dispersed and a little bit messed up. You might have to look down to the end of the row, but there um, should be a Bible there for you. And Matthew 5 is on page 472, 472. If you don't have a Bible and you want a Bible, you can take that Bible home with you and consider it our gift to you today. Matthew 5, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 16. We are continuing a sermon series here at New Life um, on our core values as a church. This is something we do every now and then, every five or six years, as a way of just reminding us who we are. Um, It's an important exercise to know who you are because um, if you don't know who you are, you don't know what to do, right? (laughs) So in order for us to know what to do and how to act as a church, it helps to know who we are. So who are we? So we've been looking into this, and we learned two weeks ago, first of all, that we are a worshiping community. You might remember that's the first core value, core value A, we call it, adoration, A for adoration, that we are a community who comes together to worship God as our creator and God as our redeemer. That's what we have been created to do. It's what we've been redeemed to do. And so this is the first most fundamental thing that we do as a church. We worship every Sunday. We gather for worship, A. The second core value is B, belonging. We looked at this last week. That is that we are a community. Actually, we are a family. Uh, We are considered sons and daughters of God. We consider one another brothers and sisters. And so we want this to be a place where we know each other, love each other. We're friends. We fellowship. This is a safe place. It's a place for you to belong. That's what we want. That's a value of ours. And today, we are considering now the third core value. We have five total. Third core value. Today's core value is that of compassion, as we have already told you. And I'll just share with you the language that describes what that means to us. By compassion, we mean this. Because God has shown compassion to us in the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ, we desire to show compassion to the church and to our community in deeds of service and mercy so that the needy among us would know God's mercy. I thought for a second I was going to have to say that by memory, and you're all going to wonder if I knew that by heart or not. Um, That's what we mean by compassion, that we want to seek to show mercy to the sick and the poor and the needy and the helpless among us. There was a book written, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, Uh, that was titled, Is Christianity Good for the World? And it became this uh, big debate between a Christian and an atheist, and they traveled around and talked a lot about it and gave their opinions about whether Christianity is good for the world. So I'm going to reframe that question and ask it to you this way. Is new life good for the world? Is new life good for Yorktown? Is new life good for Muncie, for Delaware County? If we shut our doors tomorrow, would anybody notice? Would anybody care? We should think about that. And that 
forces us to consider the call of God upon our lives as his redeemed people to show compassion. And so the text that we're going to look at today, again, is Matthew chapter 5. And uh, this is a passage where Jesus says very clearly who we are so that we can know what to do. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you've heard about that, very famous sermon delivered by Jesus uh, early in his ministry where he is uh, describing for us the character and duties of a Christian disciple. And so we're going to look at just a few verses in this passage, verses 13 to 16. So if you're able to stand, please do so out of respect for the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to read uh, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. These are the words of Jesus. <clears throat> and if you go back to verse 1, just real quickly here, he says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him. So he's speaking primarily to his disciples, to those who belong to him, believe in him. We could say he's speaking to the church. Verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Our Father, would you please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so three things I want to show you here from this text, just very, very simple, <clears throat> direct points, uh, but I will open these up and explain them to you and show you how they are supported in the words of Jesus here. The first thing is this, that as the church of Jesus Christ, we prevent what is bad in the world. That's, that's one aspect of who we are. We prevent what is bad in the world. So let me explain <clears throat> why I say that. Verse 13, again, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. So we immediately should ask the question, what, what is salt? Or what, what do we use salt for? I mean, not a hard question, right? I mean, we use salt to enhance the flavor of our food. Uh, we've got pork chops a little dry or whatever, the food casserole is just a little bland, and so you put a little salt on it, and it brings flavor, adds flavor. But salt also serves a, another purpose, which is that it is an agent of preservation. So, of course, the time that Jesus is speaking here is long before there was any such thing as a refrigerator. So if somebody had some meat, they couldn't go put it in the freezer or in the refrigerator. They had to resort to other ways to preserve that meat. And one of the ways meat was preserved is that you could get coarse salt and rub it into the meat, and that would allow the meat to keep indefinitely. It would preserve that meat from going bad, from becoming rotten or corrupt. And so the implications here of this metaphor, as Jesus is saying we are the salt of the earth, is that the earth tends to go bad, or the world tends to spoil, it tends to decay, it tends to deteriorate morally. And as we look throughout the course of history, it's hard to argue with that as we see human history being one example after another of oppression and violence and poverty and racism and slavery and war. 
Right? I mean, we, we thought we'd kind of got to the point when we were done with nationalistic land wars, right? And then this week we hear about Russia invading Ukraine. It's like, here we go again. And now people are talking like this could be a world war. And Putin's looking at access to nuclear weapons, and it's just like, I thought we were done with this. Well, what the Bible says is that human beings are sinful to their core, that the human race has a big problem. It's a heart problem of sin and rebellion against God. Going back to Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. (laughs) Not a very flattering picture of how God describes the human race. And so what God has done is He has established institutions to... um, to, to slow down that deterioration or, or to prevent it from going as bad as it could be. So we have families. God has instituted the, uh, has uh, created the institution of the family. He has uh, instituted government. One of the responsibilities of government is to uh, prevent things from being as bad as they could be. But another institution that God has set forth is the church. And the church has many purposes, of course, but one of them is to be, according to Jesus, the salt of the earth, that we are to be a preserving agent in the world. So here's a, a commentator, <clears throat> RBG Tasker. Christians are to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing or non-existent. You know, have you ever heard of a world where moral standards are constantly changing? <laughs> It seems to be the world that we live in right now. And so Jesus says Christians are the salt of the earth. You're supposed to be presenting things from going bad. You're supposed to be preventing the culture from rotting. I mean, if you think more about this metaphor of salt, you know, think about what is salt like? Salt is is strong. You know, you put salt on your food to make it taste better, but if you put too much salt on it, (laughs) you don't want it anymore, right? I mean, just nobody likes things that are too salty. Salty has a... Uh, salt has a, a sharpness. In fact, if you look up the definition to salty, you'll, you'll find that it's defined as being sharp or being biting. That there's almost a caustic nature to it, actually. And that's how Martin Luther described the presentation of the gospel. He said, Luther said, the presentation of the gospel should be sharp and caustic. Because what is inherent in the presentation of the gospel is denouncing what is not right. And as Luther went on to say, we rub salt into people's wounds so that they will awaken to their need for a Savior. Now, friends, that is no excuse. Don't misunderstand me. That is no excuse for us as God's people to be rude or to be impolite or to be insulting or to be disrespectful. 1 Peter 3 is very clear that Christians should respond to questions that come to them with gentleness and respect. That should always characterize us as believers, gentle, respectful. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, I think what he's primarily referring to is the message of the gospel that we have inherited because the gospel message is by its nature salty. I mean, think of the things that we believe as Christians. We, we don't say that human beings are basically good. Scripture doesn't allow that. People are born into this world sinful, with a natural rebellion against God. We say that there is a place called heaven, but we also say there is a place called hell. 
It's a real place, and some people go there. That's a salty message. We say that there is one way to be reconciled to God, and it is through the work that God has done in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, and His life, death, and resurrection from the dead. And there is no other way to be reconciled to God. That's salty. We even say in this day and age that marriage is for one man and one woman. And that also is a very salty message. And here's been the temptation for the church throughout history is to always want to appease the world and become like the world so that there is very little difference between us and the world, to become increasingly worldly and to be accepted and received by the world. And friends, the more we do that, the more worthless we become. Because if you look at what Jesus goes on to say at the end of verse 13, actually, right after that first phrase, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under men's feet, under people's feet. If we lose our saltiness, friends, we have nothing to offer. Our gospel is by its nature salty and to remain faithful to its biting nature in love and grace and respect is what Jesus has called us to do. There was a uh, theologian named Niebuhr many years ago who was describing what had become of the gospel in his day and age. I think it's kind of early 20th century. And he says, it's, here's the way. He was saying, here's the, here's the way the gospel is presented in churches these days. A God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's a message that's totally lost its saltiness. And it's worthless. It offers no hope. It offers no direction for how to be reconciled to God. It offers no hope for a life beyond the grave. It offers no confidence that God could love a people like us. Remember, here, Jesus is saying you're the salt of the earth. He didn't say you're the sugar of the earth. <laughs> he didn't say you're the honey of the earth. He didn't say you're out to go out and make sure people that feel good about what you say. There's a saltiness to the message, and that saltiness is given to us so that the world would be pre- prevented from being as bad as it could be. Please don't misunderstand me, friends. It's not an opportunity for you to be rude. I already said it, but I'm going to say it again. <laughs> gentleness, respectfulness, but our message is salty. Second thing that we see here, we don't only prevent what is bad, we promote what is good in the world. And notice how I'm wording this. I'm not saying we are called to promote what is good or we're called to be salty because what Jesus is saying here in grammatical terms is these are not imperatives, they're indicatives. These are not commands. He doesn't say, go be the salt. He says, you are the salt. I mean, if you're a Christian, you're salty. And if there is no saltiness in you, you might want to ask whether you're a Christian. (laughs) And you are the light of the world. He's not saying be the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And if there is no light shining from you, you should probably ask, am I a Christian? Because these are statements of who you are. So here we are. We promote what is good in the world. So the function of salt here is, is more negative. It prevents decay. The function of light is more positive. It's more proactive. It it illuminates the darkness. So verses 14 and 15, Jesus goes on, you are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. So light acts differently than salt, salt more passive, but life penetrates the darkness. It's not passive. It's, it's not hidden. In fact, if you hide the light, what an absurd thing, a more absurd thing could you imagine? Uh, That's what Jesus says. Uh, People don't put a light under a basket. Can you imagine getting a lamp and turning it on and then putting it in your closet and shutting the door? I mean, that would be ridiculous. A light is meant to shine, to give light to the whole house. It engages, it penetrates, it pushes back, it overcomes the darkness. It's more proactive in that way. That's the very nature of light. I mean, you've all got cell phones and, you know, you've got that little light feature on your cell phone and you know if you were to turn that little light on in this room it would seem like there was nothing there (laughs) but if you ever turn that little light on when it's dark in the room it's unbelievable how bright it seems even though it's a relatively weak light but in the dark it seems strong because it's the very nature of light to penetrate and push back the darkness and so jesus is saying christian disciples you're the light of the world. Now that's using a metaphor that's very frequently used in Scripture. It's just so common that I just want to show you here real quickly how you can basically give an entire gospel presentation just using the metaphor of light and darkness. Um, so, for instance, John 3, talking about the problem of sin, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That, that's, that's a problem. People aren't naturally drawn to the light. They're naturally drawn to the darkness where their evil works can be hidden and not exposed. That's the sinful problem. But, thank God, John 8 tells us that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So, light has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. So, God sends the light into the world. Jesus is the light, but We also see a description of conversion here in 2 Corinthians 4. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So conversion is an experience where God shines light into the darkness of your heart and gives you eyes to see. And then you're born again and you come to see Jesus as the light of the world and believe upon him for salvation. And then it goes on because Ephesians 5 says... At one time, you were darkness, speaking to those who have become Christians, but now you're the light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. And this is the task for all who call Jesus Savior. We are to walk in the light. So you might say, well, how how do we do that? And we get a clue to that here in Matthew 5, because when Jesus says you are the light of the world, he goes on to define exactly what he means by that. So look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. That's how we show light to the world. That's how we show that we truly know Jesus as light of the world. That's how we show that his light is living in us. That is in the good works that we do for his glory, and notice what Jesus is saying is that that light should shine before others so that they would see those good works. 
In other words, as Christians, we are not called to be hidden away in our isolated subculture, afraid of the world, drawing the blinds, waiting for Jesus to come again, which is how some Christians live. I don't have to care about the world. I'm going to heaven. That's all that matters. Jesus, come quickly. I'm going to sit here in my recliner and watch TV until he comes back. And all I'm going to do is listen to my Christian music and watch my Christian movies, and I'm not going to pay attention to anything going on in the world. That, that is just not consistent with what Jesus is saying here. You're the light of the world, and you, your good works need to be done in such a way that they are seen by others. Now, friends, we know we say this every single Sunday, and I'm going to say it again because I don't want there to be any misunderstandings. Friends, we do not believe that anybody is saved by the good works that he or she does. Your good works are just not good enough to please God and obligate Him to let you into heaven. Ephesians 2 is clear. By grace, you've been saved through faith, faith in Jesus particularly, and it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. You're not saved by your works or by your deeds. It's impossible. But those who are saved by faith in what Jesus has done Become the light of the world. And the light of the world is expressed in the good works that we do. Now, you might uh, recognize that um, uh, phrase that Jesus used here about um, a city on a hill. Verse 14 is kind of an example of this. Um, this is testing your knowledge of American history, but maybe you remember the name of a man named John Winthrop, and he sailed for the New World in 1630 with 700 Puritans on board, and they were tired of the persecution that they were experiencing in England. They wanted religious freedom, and so they came to the New World, and on the eve of that voyage, John Winthrop stood up and gave a, a little speech called a model of Christian charity, and he said to them, we are going to be a city on a hill, and the eyes of all people will be on us. And that was his ambition for coming to take part in the start of a new nation called the United States of America. He founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony at that time. It's just an example of how he quoted Matthew 5.14 as a Christian himself wanting to do something that the world could see. Now, friends, this doesn't mean that the United States is the light of the world, okay? It's not. The church is the light of the world. That's, you know, if, if you think the United States is the light of the world, you're missing the point here. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the church, and he's saying, you, the church, are the light of the world, and the church is spread all throughout the world, not just in the United States. But it is a demonstration of John Winthrop's faith and his desire for it to be seen. Another example, uh, we go back to the Old Testament in Jeremiah 29. And you might remember that that's when Israel had been exiled because of the rebellion and sin against God, and God sent them to Babylon, the most wicked city in the world. And if there was one occasion where someone might reason that I should just hide away and protect myself and not get involved, that would be it. They're in Babylon, of all places. Do they have an excuse to hide away? No, because God says to them very clearly, Jeremiah 29, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. 
Seek to bless the city. Seek to bless the community in which you have been placed. Friends, do you guys pray for Muncie and Yorktown? Do you? Pray to the Lord on its behalf. There's benefit for praying for the communities in which God has placed us. So, how is it that we can bless this particular city? That's something for us to consider. But I think one of the most startling things about this passage is when Jesus speaks to the disciples, verse 14 again, and he says, you are the light. Notice, he says, you are the light, not of Jerusalem. You're not the light of Israel. You're the light of the world. I mean, think about that. This little group of disciples, maybe 12 guys, maybe, maybe more than that at this time, they have no power, they have no leverage, they have no authority, they have no resources, they have no money, they have nothing. And Jesus says, you guys are going to light up the entire world. I mean, what must they have thought? Jesus, you've got to be crazy. How, how can we possibly do that? And yet, what do they do? They start preaching the gospel. They just start making, they start making disciples. And the church starts growing. A little congregation starts springing up. And the, the, the church moves from Jerusalem to Antioch. And you read the book of Acts. And you just see it growing and growing and growing. And so, I, I want to take a moment here to show you a, a, a short video that kind of illustrates the growth of the church over the course of history. Yeah, you're going to see two videos in this service today. We're really stepping out here at, at New Life. Two videos. Um, and so let me show this to you. Um, you'll see the date kind of going up there on the top left. The white is the expansion of Christianity. So you're looking at kind of basically the, the Europe and the Middle East and North Africa there right now. In the Middle Ages at this point. See other dynasties that have been springing up, taking root in different parts of the world. Again, the church, Christianity, is depicted by the white color. Going throughout Europe into the Scandinavian nations. Always various setbacks throughout history. Now we're getting close to the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. We have a great missionary enterprise coming from the Reformation. South America, North America. We're now beginning to see the gospel spread into Africa even into China, throughout Australia, 2016. You are the light of the world. That's what Jesus told his disciples. Now, we could quibble with this map, I understand. Am I suggesting, or is this map suggesting that all these nations are thoroughly committed Christian nations? No, no. What, it, what it's saying is that these are the parts of the world that have come under the influence of Christianity. These are the parts of the world that have adopted Christian assumptions that have begun to look at the world from a basic Christian perspective. That's how much the church has spread. The disciples 
We're the light of the world, and you and I continue to be the light of the world. You look throughout history, and what you'll find is that it's Christians very often are the ones who are starting hospitals and orphanages and universities and fighting for human rights. A guy named Tom Holland who wrote a book called Dominion, which is all about the spread of Christianity through the history of the world, and I'm not even sure that Tom Holland's a Christian, actually, Uh, but he says this, the civilization into which I had been born was Christendom. Assumptions that I had grown up with were not bred of classical antiquity, still less of human nature, but very distinctively of that civilization's Christian past. In a West that is often doubtful of religion's claims, so many of its instincts remain, for good and ill, thoroughly Christian. It's just something, you know, when you swim in Christian waters all your life, you just miss sight of how so many assumptions are basically based on Christian teaching. That's what Holland is saying. Now, am I suggesting the church is without fault throughout history? Of course not. Uh, The church is responsible for many shameful acts, has made many mistakes, guilty of many faults. Nor am I suggesting that non-Christians haven't done good things in the world. Of course they have. My point is just to say that what Jesus said about the disciples as the light of the world proved to be true. And if that light shone throughout the world in that respect, I mean, how much more will it shine if we think carefully about what it is for us as believers here in Yorktown, Indiana, to be the light of the world? One last thing to show you, preventing what is bad in the world, promoting what is good in the world is all for one purpose, and that is the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. So before I show you that, just two quick warnings here that I want us to to think about. Uh, A warning for us as individuals and a warning for us as a church. For us as individuals, it can be easy when you hear these kind of exhortations to to do good works and to exercise gifts of mercy um, to, um, to, to change a city or a nation. It can be very easy to feel overwhelmed um, and to feel like this is something I can't do and maybe even to feel guilty. You know, you hear about the orphans in Somalia or something like that, and, you know, your heart wells up, but what can you do? And you begin to feel a little bit guilty because you're not addressing all of these issues that are around us. I just want to encourage you to do this, friends. Just consider what is in your immediate reach. Consider where you can serve in the place where God has put you. Bloom where you're planted, as the cliche says. Maybe there's a single mother on your street, can't get the driveway shoveled before she goes to work. Maybe there's a new neighbor on your street. Person's come from out of state, doesn't know anybody. Maybe there's a widow or a widower on your street. Someone mourning right now has nobody to sit down with. These are all people you can reach out to. That's an example of being a light to the world. Be a light to these people. Be a light to the people that God has put right in your immediate proximity. We can also think of this with regard to our church. We've been praying for the Mercy Ministries here today, Kids Hope. You heard about that. Think about whether the Lord might be calling you to that. We have a nursing home ministry called Muncie Estates, formerly Elmcroft, that once a month goes to that place to spend time with the elderly residents there. There's a Mercy Ministry called Reach Yorktown that seeks to care for the poor, the needy, the homeless, right here in our immediate area. And actually, we need someone from this church to serve on the board of directors for Reach Yorktown. We don't have anybody to do that right now, Um, even though the person who started the ministry used to go to this church, so we need somebody to step up for that. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to do that. 
Um, and then there are opportunities in our community as well, right here in Muncie in Yorktown. Serving at the Muncie Mission is always uh, an option. We have people at this church who work at the mission. The, um, the, the, the one who leads the mission, actually, Frank Baldwin, is a member of this church. And so there are opportunities for us to serve at the mission. And we also have this very unique opportunity to help those from Afghanistan who have been uh, fleeing the Taliban in their country and who are now in this country, and um, uh, many of them have been sent to this community, and they're seeking to get themselves established. And we have a, a guest with us, Ari Hurwitz. We're very grateful for his presence, and we're going to have a pitch and meal after this service, and we're going to get the opportunity to hear from Ari about how we can help, bless, care for uh, these refugees who are here in Muncie. So um, many opportunities for us to get involved, friends. Don't feel guilty because you're not doing everything. Just do something. And even if it's a small thing, it's better than no thing, right? So that's a warning for us as individuals. The, the, the other warning here is just for us as a church. And so this is a, a clarifying remark. Um, and it's this, that the church must always be careful that we don't lose sight of our ultimate purpose. Because it would be very easy for the church to begin to think that if I'm supposed to go out and do good works and bless the city, that we are basically a social service agency. And we're not. We do social services, we help bless our community, but we are the church. We are different. We are the pillar and foundation of the truth. And our primary call is preaching the gospel, making disciples of all nations, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus told us to do. That's our primary goal. These efforts to bless and help our community and serve the needy are certainly important, but they're not our primary goal. And so I'm going to show you that from this text here as we conclude, because at the very end of verse 16, Jesus says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And, and so why? For what purpose? Why? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the ultimate purpose. That's the long-term goal, that God is glorified, not that we're glorified. There's always that temptation, right, when you're doing ministries, helping the poor, serving the needy, to think, look, man, I am a, look at me and the work that I'm doing. What a gracious, helpful guy I am. But the purpose of all of this is not to bring glory to ourselves, but to bring glory to the Father. And God the Father is ultimately glorified in this way. When people hear the gospel, they realize their sin, they're convicted, they humble themselves, they repent, they receive Jesus as their Savior, they bow their knee to Him, they believe that He has paid the penalty for sins on the cross, they believe in His resurrection from the dead, and they believe what Paul said, that Jesus is exalted so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how the Father is glorified, knees bending to the Lord Jesus. It's interesting here, isn't it, also in verse 16, who is it that is to give glory to your Father who is in heaven? It's, it's not the disciples necessarily doing the work. It's so that those who see your good works, they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So how are they going to do that unless they don't know the gospel? And so implied here, I think, is in the good works that we do, we're also calling people to faith in the one Savior.
I agree with a guy named Graham Tomlin. He wrote this. He said, um, without our good works, well, no, this way, without our words explaining the gospel, nobody understands. But without our actions and good works, nobody listens. and Nobody cares. So these two things must be brought together. So friends, let's, let's be who Jesus says we are, salt of the earth, the light of the world, that all the world would bow the knee to Jesus and glorify God the Father in heaven. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Would you please, Father, help us to do what we are, to be salt, to be light, not to draw attention to ourselves, not because we think these things are going to merit our salvation, but because of what you called us to do as your people, that you, Jesus, the light of the world, have come to live, die, and be resurrected, and now you've called us to carry the torch and be in a light on your behalf. Help us as a congregation to do that well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.